minister was walking through his church uh, one morning when he passed one of his church members digging in the garden instead of going to church. Uh, and, and he said to him, can't you hear the church bells calling you to church? Uh, it's a bit hard of hearing. Well, what's that, said the member? Can't you hear those bells calling you to church? I'm afraid you'll have to speak a bit louder. Can't you hear those bells calling you to church, shouted the minister. I'm sorry, said the member. Can't hear you because of those wretched bells. <laughs> calling people to church, calling people so that everybody is welcome is what this whole series that we've embarked upon is about, and we're in week three now. We've looked a little bit at the theological basis of hospitality. We welcome people, not because it's a good idea, but because Jesus told us to. (laughs) That's why we welcome people. That's why we're hospitable. That's why we seek to bring people into fellowship with us, because Jesus told us to. And now, we have a little look at our buildings. But this week, it's not so much that we look at the buildings and, and, and what it's like as, as people, and particularly as new people, come in. We are going to be looking at that, particularly at the joint home group meeting on Tuesday, uh, and then also next week. But this week, we pick up the thought of, what is it that we are calling people to? What is it <laughs> that, that, that we are wanting people to join? What is it that that we have here, we pray? And is it fit for purpose? And I don't mean our actual services, and, and actually we do look at that as the series progresses, but I'm talking more about our core values as the Church of Christ. Because always remember, this is not our church, it's not your church, it's not my church, it's Christ's. It's his church. He is the head of the church. And we are his servants doing his will. And that's why part of our vision statement says that we will always seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. We won't always get it right, but we will seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. Core values. And I think as Jesus comes into the temple courts in this very familiar story um, from Matthew's Gospel, that we get something of what the sacred space what our fellowship should be about. And I wanted to pick out a few things from it. So what does he see and what happens? Well, now the context, we need to always know that, don't we, when we open our Bibles? Jesus has just come into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. The crowds have shouted, Hosanna, all of that that we are familiar with. And we need to know that he is doing the exact opposite of that which he has spent his ministry doing, which in a sense is keeping in the shadows, keeping in the background, doing the work of the kingdom, but not in a sense drawing attention to himself. Now it's the opposite. Rides into Jerusalem, everybody knows. And now what a way to go to church. (laughs) Uh, He strides in and suddenly there are tables everywhere, things being thrown. Uh, This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus who is making a demonstration. A demonstration of the kingdom of God and what happens or what should happen when the kingdom of God is in a place. And I think it's important to know that it is a demonstration. He is doing this deliberately. This isn't some fit of pique, you know, (laughs) that... 
that, that, that he's gone and is really annoyed that there's all these people and so he loses his temper. It's nothing like that at all. We know that Jesus was without sin. And there's such thing as righteous indignation, and I suppose he is showing that, but I believe this is planned. This is a demonstration of what church should be as he brings in a new era of a relationship with God. Now, where actually is he? That's important to know as well. He's not in the, the inside of the temple. He is in the temple courts, uh, the courts of the Gentiles, this is called. And this was always the area where people met. There was always hustle and bustle. And it's not the hustle and bustle that Jesus is uh, arguing about, if you like, or pointing out. It's, it's not that that's the issue. And in a way, it's not the issue of what was going on. The, the people there, I mean, some of them may have been crooks, we don't know, but they were pro- providing a very useful service as people came to sacrifice animals in the temple uh, because that was the, the religion that they understood. So they had to get these animals from somewhere, and this is where they bought them. And there were people from all nations coming to Jerusalem, and so there were money changers. Uh, And you think, well, was that so wrong? Is this what Jesus is complaining about? And lodged with that, we have to ask ourselves, if it was all about chucking tables about, then what did he achieve? Because you can bet your bottom dollar, not that, of course, any of you bet, (laughs) but you could bet your bottom dollar that those tables were all back. Probably a few days later, but certainly after Jesus' death. <laughs> I just remember when I was rector of Ditchingham in the pulpit, I don't know if I've told you this, there, there was a dirty great big lamp that someone had put there. You know, like the sort of Narnia lamp. And, you know, so if you were sort of getting a bit carried away, you go, oh! <laughs> and and I, I said to the warden, um, I don't like that, can you move it? And he said, yes, of course, Ian. And, and the next week it was gone. I went back to St. Mary's Ditchingham a few weeks after. Well, you've guessed the rest. (laughs) Clergy are but temporary fittings. We know that. (laughs) What was I talking about? Oh, yes. The tables would have been back. So if Jesus' objective was to get rid of the tables and the money changers and, and the people selling animals, he failed. But that was not what he was about, I believe. That was not what he was about. And I'm I'm going to ask four questions. Well, I'm I'm going to attempt to answer them as well because I think these things speak into what we are thinking about and come from this passage. And the first question is, so what does he drive out? Now, I've always thought that it was the people selling and the people that were crooked, if you like, and and stealing people's money or or giving money uh, at at the wrong sorts of rates of interest, all those sorts of things. But if you read it more carefully, it says, he drove out all who were buying and selling there. It's everybody that he throws out. This is no Zacchaeus moment. So these are good people who are being swindled out of their money, maybe, we don't know. Jesus doesn't turn around and say to to the the money changers, okay, everything that you've taken away from these people you must give back. No, he chucks the lot out, both buyer and seller. Well, what's that about? 
Is it fair? All this stuff was needed to support the system of worship and the sacrificial stuff going on in the temple. And that's the point of it. (laughs) Jesus was replacing the system. A few days after this, he was to die on the cross. The one Lamb of God given for the sins of humanity and for all who will accept him into their lives as Lord and Savior. He was replacing the system. And he was replacing it with cross and resurrection. And that's the first thing that we need to take note of if we're serious about this being sacred space into which we want to welcome as many people as possible. If we don't keep the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ central to everything we do, and the gospel in all its many expressions of God's generous love to humanity, then we might as well lock the doors and leave. You see, I think sometimes in in the worry about dwindling church attendance across the land, and praise God at the moment, we, we don't have that as an issue at the moment. You know, praise God. But in, in our worry to think, well, people aren't listening to our message. We've got to do this and we've got to do that. Now, now don't, don't, don't get me wrong. We, we need to adapt and change all the time as we seek to get that message across to as many people as possible. But we never change the message. And we keep the cross and the resurrection as the centerpiece of everything that we do. Because otherwise, what are we for? Now, what we want to say to people is that, yes, you're welcome to come to our sacred space because in our sacred space, we know that it is possible for you to meet with a God who loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you. And so much that he wants a relationship with you. And so much that he wants to release you from all of the burdens and the rubbish that's kept you down there. And feeling that you're just worthless. That's what our God wants to do. And we need to keep that central. Because isn't it the most exciting message in the world? We can get so bogged down, can't we? We've got to do this and we've got to do that in the programs. And I know, you know, I'm chiefly at fault. There's people who say, Ian, there's too much stuff happening here. And, and uh, well, maybe there is. But, but, you know, we can get weighed down with that. We can get weighed down with buildings and worry about uh, money and all of that sort of thing. And it's at, that, it's at that point that we need to kneel again at the foot of the cross and realize what it is we are about. And that is, I believe, what Jesus is doing here. They wouldn't have known it, but we do. This was all for us, a reminder of what church should be. Keep the gospel central. What does he say? What does he say? Well, the famous words, and he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, which says, 
And it's in the context of a whole prophecy about how things are going to be renewed, the temple is going to be renewed, and the worship of God's people is going to be renewed. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. But of course, we now know it's a different sacrifice. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that's, the, that's what Jesus is quoting. How is he able to quote it? Because he has committed scripture to memory. I'm not talking about that this morning, but you know, I keep going on about it. We need to learn the Bible. Anyway, um, that's what he quotes. Because he is fulfilling prophecy as he does this. That's the other reason that Jesus is doing this particular thing. And doing what he always does. He, He takes prophecies that are about the kingdom of God and says the kingdom of God is here. So this is another mark of Christ's kingdom. And as I said at the beginning, it's not spontaneous anger. It's a deliberate demonstration. A house of prayer. We had a fantastic evening on Friday. Uh, At one point, I think 25, maybe I didn't count exactly, but this was full of uh, people praying as we prayed right through from 7 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the morning. People coming and going. Even at one o'clock, there were still 13. It was rather interesting because there were 13 of us gathered around the table um, uh, just for a simple breaking of bread. Uh, Well, of course, there were 13 at the Last Supper, so no one really wanted to be the first to leave (laughs) because that sort of makes them Judas, doesn't it? (laughs) As we stood around that table, I don't know what it was like for the others. Well, I know one or two because they've said, well, there was a tangible feeling of the presence of God and this is a house of prayer. And part of that for me had been because it took me at least sort of three hours to slow down and let my mind <laughs> just get rid of everything it was thinking about and to start dwelling in the presence of God. I mean, my prayer is that people will come into this place and find God. And they may find it through new services or more traditional. They may find it at 8 o'clock. They may find it at choral evensong. They may find it on Wednesday morning. They may find it here. They may find it uh, at 6 o'clock as we worship in a, in a very contemporary style. All these different ways. But the aim is the same. That in this place we say it is very much like the first lesson. And almost take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. The den of thieves that he talks about is picked from Jeremiah, verses 9 to 11. You see, Jesus really did know his Bible, where a den of thieves is spoken about. And if you read that passage... Again, you realize that he's not talking about anyone taking somebody's money. What he is talking about is people coming into the house of God whose way of life is unrepentant and who are working deliberately against God and then sort of pretending by coming into the temple that somehow they're okay. And again, Jesus is saying that as we come in, Let's be honest. You know, we are all imperfect people. We've all sinned. I mean, 
Well, I won't say hands up who hasn't sinned this week because I know what the answer will be. You know, in some way, we always let God and the people around us down in little ways and in bigger ways. But we come and we know forgiveness if we come with honesty because then God can work with us. He is speaking here, den of thieves against people who just do whatever they think they want to do. And then in a sense, there's a public display that everything's all right. You see, this has to be a place where people meet with God. I've always said that Christianity is not a religion. It's a faith. And it's a relationship with God. And I think Jesus was saying something about that here as he got rid of all of the trappings of religion and reminded people that they should have lives, repentant lives, and lives lived in relationship with God. What does he do next? Now that's interesting in this gospel account. Very interesting. I can't say I've really noticed it before. Verse 14. So he's chucked all these people out and it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now I think I've glossed over that in the past because this is what Jesus did everywhere. Uh, As people came, people were with sickness, so Jesus would bring healing to them. But you know, if you go back to 2 Samuel... Chapter 5 and verse 8, you discover that David, King David, prohibited the blind and the lame from entering the temple or its courts. And that had been the practice evidently ever since. And Jesus is saying, not on my watch, not in my church, because all are welcome. None are excluded because the kingdom of God is about embracing and bringing people into a God who loves them and not about saying this is a religious club where you are not welcome because of something, in this case, that's wrong with you. Jesus reverses it. And he comes in prophecy, doesn't he, as the son of David, but... He is greater than David. And he is setting a new mark. Yes, for signs and wonders in the church, I believe. Yes, and we pray for healing. And yes, I know that men, many times we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, but, the, but, but for some people, the, the real work is done afterwards when they go forward for prayer ministry and ask for something to be prayed about in their lives that needs God's touch which is why that part is every bit as important as all of the rest of what we do together. No one excluded. All may come. We should expect God's intervention that actually makes people's lives better. I mean, I know we have to come first in repentance, but but then Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And if this is a sacred space, that's what we want to happen to all of our lives. I don't know what your week's been like and what's happened, what you're facing at the moment. I know what some of you are facing. 
Some in in desperate situations, others in more joyous situations. But God wants to make your situation better. And church should be a place where that can happen and be helped and be enabled. So, who does he drive out? We found that out. What does he say? What does he do next? Lastly, who gets it? Who understands? You know, there he is, his disciples around him, goes into the temple, and suddenly he appears to be going mad. Who gets it? Not the disciples. I mean, we don't actually know what they were doing, but I can imagine it. Can't you? <laughs> They'll be thinking, oh, Jesus, no, don't do that. <laughs> no, not that table over there. I know that family. They're, you know, that's the local mafia in that corner. Don't chuck them out. What are you doing to those good people, those poor people who've brought all their money so they can buy a lamb or a, or a partridge or whatever it was they, that they, they were going to, to sacrifice? What on earth are you doing? And they would have stood there, I think, in bemusement. And a bit of fear. Because perhaps they hadn't seen Jesus like this too often. They didn't understand. Chief priests and Pharisees, well, in a sense, they might have understood. But it says they were indignant. And notice this. It's not been generally the chief priests until now. It's been the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Uh, That's the, the little phrase that's often used. Now, the chief priests are out. You know, the bishops weighing in. <laughs> the, the, the big guns, if you like, of, of the religious institution. Their attention has been grabbed. And they kill him for it. I mean, this is, again, why Jesus is doing this. He knows that this week is going to lead him to Good Friday and, and death. Uh, and so he's not worried about drawing attention to himself. That's what's going to happen. They didn't get it. It says, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw all of the wonderful things he did, they were indignant. Why? Because they couldn't do it. They couldn't bring people to God in this way, and it must have hurt them. It must have hurt them. And they could perhaps see their well-organized system, out of which they were doing very nicely, being disrupted and perhaps destroyed. And as I say, so they killed him. So who gets it? Well, I'll tell you. The children. The children get it. You read it. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yeah. Have you never read? You see, he's getting on at them about memorizing scripture as well. (laughs) Have you never read, and it's from Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. You know, may, some of you may know the older version. Uh, is it out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained praise? And if you look at that psalm, 
That psalm is talking about children praising God. And the chief priests would have hated this even more because Jesus, in these words, is saying, I am God, and these children, at whatever level they are operating at, are beginning to understand that. I am God. Hosanna to the Son of David. You see, we think we've got to encourage children to come to church in order to be the church of tomorrow so that things carry on. That's not why we do it. We encourage children to come because they are part of the church of today and should be accepted with the same open arms that Jesus had when the disciples tried to push them out of the way and say, Jesus is too busy to bother with you. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me because to such of these belongs the kingdom of God. And we understand from that that he is saying, of course, that all of us need to come as children to our Heavenly Father in childlike trust. And of course, you see, children can be very prophetic because they haven't had years to sort of clutter up their minds and to build walls against God speaking to them. Now, when God wanted to speak to the boy Samuel in the temple, he just heard him straight away. Didn't quite understand that it was God until the third time, but, but he could hear God. We need to listen to our children. And we need to really encourage them. Now, we're having a, a, another holiday club this summer. People are signing up already. We've got a fantastic team of people. It's almost 30, I think. I think we're going to be sort of one to three children, <laughs> which is great. And many of those children don't come regularly. Perhaps the only thing they come to is the holiday club. And, and, and so we can sow a little bit of the gospel in their lives for later because it might bear fruit, but also for now, so that they can live with God now. Because often children don't come to church, not because they don't want to, but because their parents can't be bothered to bring them. So I hope that when we have the holiday club service here in St. Mark's, at the end of the week, that everybody will be here to welcome them, even if it's not your style of service. I hope you'll be here because it seems to me it's another thing Jesus is telling us to do. It's almost a kingdom of God prophetic thing that we must welcome children because it reminds us that we are all children to God, that none of us have made it in any sense of the word. As part of our vision statement, we have the phrase worshipping God, a growing Christ-centered community, worshipping God, led by the Spirit, making disciples. Worshipping God is there deliberately. We spent a year praying about this, and it's there because at the heart of what we do, that's what we must do. Because if this isn't a sacred place where people, all people are welcomed in to whatever the service is or to whatever the event is, If this isn't a place where they can meet God and have a life-changing encounter with him in the power of the Holy Spirit, then what are we about? 
At our core, we must be right, or as right as it's possible to be. And then watch what God will continue to do in our midst. Let's pray. So please, God, accept our repentance for when we haven't been this, or for when we as individuals haven't helped this to happen. And help us to provide a place, a sacred space, where not only do we feel the touch of love that is ours from you, but others do. And perhaps people that have never felt that before. Because, Lord Jesus, we we want to be people who take your gospel to new places. Amen.